Hello everyone. Hello, so I want to talk about all the rest of the reasons why I left the church, religion, and Christianity. So I am spiritual but not affiliated. I'm spiritual but not religious. You may put me in that I believe in God, but not religion category. Um, you may put me in the I'm a practitioner of secular spirituality, but not religious spirituality. Um for example, I am four categories of spiritual but not religious. Um, I am a dissenter, which means I make a conscious effort for the most part to veer away from institutional religion. Um, I am turned I am turned off by religious affiliations because of my first personal experiences with it. Um, I fell out of touch with organized religion and for the most part I don't go back. Um, I think that religion as it has been made. It, I don't find it useful or necessarily part of my spirituality because that kind of religion is not the one that my grandma taught me, not the one that my ancestors practice. Um... I'm an explorer. I am on a constant search for novel spiritual practices because I do have a a necessary curiosity, my desire for positive journey and positive change. And I do have genuine feelings of genuine disappointment. Um, I'm a spiritual tourist because I take healthy comfort in the destinationless journey of my spirituality. And I have no intentions of ultimately committing to one spiritual home. Why well, limit myself to just one, right? Um, I'm also a seeker. I'm a sincere I'm a sincere seeker for God. I'm a sincere seeker for Jesus, if you will. Um, I am one of those people who's looking for a um, a Christ-like home in terms of having the right people around me. Um, when I think of home, I think of people. Not necessarily the physical home, but my my personal orbit, if you will. Uh I'm a sincere seeker for all truths and all wisdom. Uh,
I want to ultimately commit to Christ's likeness without religiosity and Christ's likeness without fire and brimstone spirituality. And I'm recovering from spiritual literacy that I've experienced from others. I'm recovering from biblical literacy that I've experienced, that I've experienced from others. Um, I'm also an immigrant in the sense that I'm I'm one of those people that have found myself in a novel spiritual realm. I'm doing my best to adjust myself to my newfound identity and the new community that I'm a part of. Um, I am working on a radically new spiritual environment, which I'm trying on. I'm not completely settled there just yet. I'm hoping to become fully integrated in my newfound spiritual identity. The process of acclimation for me is difficult and often disconcerting, but for me it's worth it. Uh, I'm also a casual, right? Meaning, here's how I define it for myself. It means that I have very little of the very little of the old parts of the past in church into my life, for example. From time to time, I still read um, biblical commentaries on each of the biblical translations and from time to time I discuss the meanings of the biblical commentaries of the biblical translations that I read sometimes I talk about it before I don't do that all the time because I spend most of my time talking about my own commentaries of each of the biblical translations, you know, that are out there. Because each version of the Bible has own translations. And most of the time I talk about my commentary more than the commentary of the writers of the translations of those versions of the Bible. That's what casual means for me. I would say spirituality is an organizing principle in my life. I see it as a much needed basis for bettering my health, my relieving stress, and for my emotional support. Um, it's a therapeutic spirituality for me because it centers on my individual personal well being, and that's how it should be best understood. Um, my spirituality is primarily functional for me, so um, I do have elements of the five distinct categories, you know. So, yes, I am. Um,
I am a decenter spiritual but not religious person. I'm a casual spiritual but not religious person. I'm an explorer spiritual but not religious person. I'm a seeker spiritual but not religious person. And I'm an immigrant spiritual but not religious person. So that would be me. Okay. Here we go. So here's I'm reading John Shelby Spong's, the late John Shelby Spong's words. And here are my personal beliefs. I agree with him when he says that all human beings bear God's image and must be respected for what each person is. Therefore, no external description of one's being, whether based on race, ethnicity, gender, or sexual orientation, can probably can properly be used as the basis for the rejection of discrimination. Um, I'll also say everything else in my own words. I just felt like that was so perfect. I needed to quote him because I agree with that. Okay. In my opinion, from my perspective, I think that the biblical story of the perfect and finished creation for which human beings found the sin is pre-Darwinian mythology and post-Darwinian nonsense. I agree with that because why would I, as a god, make my children pure evil and then constantly tell them to repent. You have to repent for your nature every day, every week. That means you can't have true repentance if they're always apologizing to you, if they're always making amends with you for their nature. They did not ask to be born in ways that dissatisfies you. They did not ask to come out of the womb with innate defiance against you. So I'm like, that's not how people are made. I just I just don't I just don't understand pro-life but you're saying that babies are born bad what did the baby do to God nothing they don't know right from wrong so I'm born wrong so sin is my birth defect I didn't ask for that I didn't ask to be imperfect I didn't ask 
to be raped. So was I born to be raped? I just don't, that original sin doctrine really bothers me because in my, from my perspective, I have seen that people who tend to believe in original sin, um, are the most indulgent of what they call sin, which I can't, I can't make sense out of that. The people say they were born bad. They tend to try their best to be God's sneaky kids. Let me sin a little bit, God. I'm grown. I, I got cussed, God. I just got saved. But you pride yourself on having traditional biblical Christian beliefs. I, I don't understand. So adult sins are more satisfying to God than child sins. That doesn't make sense. That's my personal example. I'm experiencing my own family. And if I know that a baby is going to grow up to be a rapist, why would I even make that baby? Why would I even... allow that baby to be a future victimizer? And why would I put people in situations where they could have future victimhood? That makes no sense. And people... born bad just that also shows that is are you saying that god is a bad creator because bad creation can come from a bad creator is that what y'all saying and then the whole watch wait they're sin they're an infant why are y'all hard on infants they're babies the baby did nothing wrong. The baby's innocent. Leave the baby alone. And I believe in original blessings. I do not believe in original sin. Now, there's some people that I've questioned where they born that, like my mom's brother and the rapist who raped me. If you applied original sin to them, it would be much easier for me to accept that but I would still have a problem with why would God make those type of people in the first place okay the virgin birth understood as literal biology makes Christ's divinity as traditionally understood impossible I've always felt like the virgin birth story tended to dehumanize sexually active women and sexually active girls because why does Mary need to be a virgin for Jesus to be pure? Why can't you be pure and not a virgin? Right? The construct of virginity has always been a problem for me because it tends to dehumanize sex workers. It tends to 
dehumanize um, women and girls who have been sexually violated. I'm talking about women and girls because virgin birth married can a woman. So I've always thought like the virgin birth door, if you if you're God, why can't you come through the world by Mary and Joseph having sex? What was wrong with their sex life? What was so bad about their sex life? Like, no, no, I can't. I got, you know, Mary's got to be a virgin. But if you're God, why is your purity dependent upon two human beings not having relations with each other? Your purity is based on yourself, not human sexual activity. And then I noticed at the virgin birth story, if you truly believe in sexual purity, why be silent on pastors and congregations having sex with each other? Why are you silent on preachers getting caught with sex workers? And why are y'all silent about preachers having mistresses? Preachers having out of wedlock babies all over the country and outside of America. And why are y'all silent on preachers in human trafficking? Right? And why are y'all silent? on sex offenders and church builders. Why does being a virgin dictate the womanhood of a woman, the girlhood of a girl? But we don't emphasize virginity for males and boys though. Even in churches, it's accepted for men to be sexual deviants and sexually reckless. But if a female does any of those things, they eviscerate her. So it's okay for a man or a boy to impregnate a teenage girl or a preteen girl. But the girl gets all of the negative scrutiny so that's what I feel I agree with that um, it says the view of the cross as the sacrifice for sins of the world is a barbaric idea based on primitive concepts of God and must be dismissed Here's how I interpret that, because I agree with that. Why did God have to come in human physique? because we're bad and not because we're good. I think Jesus came because we're we're needing of love. 
not because of how hateful and we are, not because that we're hateful. So you only so you're only bothered with me because I'm a terrorist, but you're not bothered with but you didn't want to be bothered with me as a creation that is capable of innate goodness. You didn't love me enough to make me innately good. You hated me enough to make me innately bad. So I think Jesus came for abundant life and the sins of the world had nothing to do with it. Because if you focus on how bad somebody is, you're not going to value their lives. But if you focus on, I see what you can do. And I honor who you already are. You are the apple of my eye. You are beautiful. You are gorgeous inside and out. That's why I want to die for you. It shouldn't be because you suck, you're garbage, you're a dirt bag, and I'm going to commit a self-human sacrifice, a self-child-human sacrifice for God because y'all are a bunch of mud piles. No. Jesus died because we are already wonderful. We're already amazing. We're already inspiring. We're already lovely. We're already great. We're already good and kind and peaceful. Because when they say he died for the sins of the world, you're basically saying we're the murderers of Jesus. We are a bunch of assassins of Christ, which I find to be offensive. Um, nine, there is no external objective revealed standard written in scripture on tablets of stone that will govern our ethical behavior for all time. I've always, I believe that, I always believe that because scripture, all scriptures need, all scriptures need consistent repetitive revisions and updating. You know, as humans, are con we're constantly doing revisions and updates in terms of our outlooks on life and the world, universe. So why can't scriptures be the same way? And why not be crystal clear on what you're saying? Um, about any and all subjects. I find the Bible has poor writing. It has, like I said in the earlier episodes, it has vagueness, it has ambiguity, it has cryptic messaging, it has unclear messaging, it has
needless wordings where you go. Why all the confusion? You know, it has it drive has confusing messaging. It has hazy, cloudy type of messaging in it. Um, that's where I stand on that. Let me get back to number six, the sins of the world thing. Why not forgive without causing Mary trauma that she had to carry for the rest of her life and she never got therapy for it? Why not create therapy back then? Because ancient people needed therapy. I mean, all of the genocides and all of the hundreds, maybe even thousands of crucifixions a day? You mean moms walking with their children and they see somebody getting crucified if they're going to the market in the town? If you're the wonderful counselor, why not create wonderful counseling and have people certified and licensed back then? Why you know that therapy would not be invented as a thought until 20th century at some parts of the 19th century, definitely 21st century. Why not create that then instead of waiting centuries later to do that? Mary could have benefited from a psychiatrist. Mary could have benefited from a psychologist. Mary could have benefited um, from a therapist. Mary could have benefited from a counselor. Mary could have benefited from a recovery center. Mary could have benefited from group therapy. You're the wonderful counselor, you know. You're living in a patriarchal culture where women and girls are being violated. You didn't think to create psychology firms, psychology centers back then. And then The whole sense of women being blamed for sin in the world through Eve. Doesn't make sense. And why not address that back then? And why is that something that modern people choose to address, but ancient people did not? So I have issues with that. Um, Okay, 11. The hope for life after death must be separated forever from the behavior control mentality of reward and punishment. The church must abandon it for its reliance on guilt as a motivator of behavior.
here's how I feel about that. It took me a while to respond because I was just thinking about what I was feeling. Why? For example, for me, why the whole sense of I know that some people will be sentenced to eternal damnation. But I'm gonna let it happen. Why make beings capable of eternal damnation? And why make it easy for some people to be in environments where they're taught Christian culture and apparently they were made for eternal paradise. That doesn't make sense. Why do people have to wait till they die to experience the ultimate justice, eternal justice from God? Why not give me eternal justice right now while I'm conscious enough to experience it, perhaps enjoy it? Why the whole sense of do good for all the bad reasons and when somebody does bad, they get a slap on the wrist if they're in leadership, but if they're not in leadership, they're toyed with. That doesn't make sense to me. And why... Why is guilt tripping holy? Why is shame tripping holy? Why is blame tripping holy? Why is fear tripping and fear mongering holy? Why is worry tripping holy? Why are we constantly made to feel awful about the beauties of human imperfections? I don't understand that. Um, Hmm, those are my thoughts that I felt would truly be great to share. My other thoughts are for when I think of sinners, I think of those who commit heavy crimes, I think of terrorists, I think of dictators, I think of pure evil people. People who never change for the better and they know they should. So I think sinners exist in that context, but most people aren't sinners. Most people aren't pure evil, therefore there's no sin in them. There is sin in those who are on the snap TV show who are on the ID Investigation Discovery Channel. Yeah, now those are sinners. Those are sinners. The, the type of people that are on all crime shows that you can think of, those are sinners. So yes, they're sinful. Absolutely. So I think sinners exist in that context too. But most people 
don't live lives where they're not put in infamous territories because there's nothing infamous about us, about them. So, imperfect, beautiful, right? Most people are imperfect. Very few people are sinners, right? So when you say Jesus represents the world, are you talking about imperfect people or the sinners that I described to you? Make up your mind. Okay, tell them to make up their minds. Um, all right. It says, theism as a way of defining God is dead, so most theological God talk is today meaningless. A new way to speak of God must be found. Um, I think that a lot of times when we talk about God, we talk about God in ways that overemphasize divinity and underemphasize humanity. The fact that Jesus could have had sexual urges bothers people. And the fact that Jesus raised the dead excites people. I'm like, okay, that's weird. Why can't both be beautiful and wondrous? And why is theological God talk all about shoving beliefs down people's throats instead of inviting them into the compassion and empathy of God. And why is theological God talk all about fronting and stunting instead of truly valuing the gentleness and generosity of God. Those are my questions. And then, why not preserve all the original manuscripts and original texts of the Bible? If you know that this is your word, let nothing of contamination happen to your word. Um... So, so far, I'm agreeing with John Shelby Spong, the late John Shelby Spong. Uh, it's going to take a while because I'm, I'm really thinking. And I'm not going to be quiet about my these perspectives. I'm going to really go in all in. So, for the next one says, Prayer cannot be a request made to this the deity to act in human history in a particular way. When I think of that, I'm you know, you could talk to God, you may not be able to. I don't know. I think 
prayers is welcomed in our world and it should be because you know gotta value human rights of all people however when I think of prayer um, I think of not trying to have God at your beck and call not trying to have God as your slave I don't think God should have you as its slave. I don't think God should have you at his, his beck and call. I don't think God, you should have to um, be subservient to God in a overseeing type way. I don't think God should treat you that way. I don't think you should treat God that way. I think prayer should be about people who have who are the least of these prayer should be about the least of these in the world more about the least of these in the world and less about ourselves when we pray for ourselves it should be how help me to grow in my love for the least of these and help me to grow um in terms of loving myself for all the right reasons, including basing it upon how much I care for the least of these in the world. So, the type of request, um, I think of conversations with God should not be based upon do this, do that, da da da, telling, you know, you know, God bossing me around, you bossing God around, like, nah, I think prayer should be just a sincere conversation. Speaking of that, I gotta be real. Sometimes when I think I am talking to God, I do curse in my prayers because those knowledge words, a lot of times in my heart, because I, and recovering from rape trauma syndrome, I'm recovering from post-traumatic stress, I'm recovering from sexual performance anxiety, I'm recovering from general social anxieties, and I'm recovering from depression. Um, that's why. Okay. I think about how it says resurrection is an action of God. Jesus was raised into the meaning of God and therefore cannot be a physical resuscitation occurring inside human history. I love that he's metaphorical about those things. I'm not sure if it physically happened, but I love that he made a metaphor.
That's also what he's getting at. Listen to what I'm thinking. Okay, five. The miracle stories in the New Testament can only be interpreted in a post-Newtonian world as supernatural events formed by an incarnate deity. I wish there was evidence for the miracle stories scientifically. So they can be easily vouched for instead of set of extraordinary feats being done and all we do is just get amazed by them um two since God can no longer be conceived in theistic terms it becomes nonsensical to seek to understand Jesus as the incarnation of theistic deity so the Christology of the age is bankrupt. Um, I'm not sure what to think of Jesus in terms of the incarnation theistic deity one, but I constantly feel a sense of the way religion describes Jesus horrifies me because why is Jesus having embraced people and shunned people. You know, the, the chosen people thing. So why is Jesus here for certain people, but not all people according to religion? But you, aren't you supposed to care about everyone's salvation? Aren't you supposed to care about Everyone finding you salvific? I don't understand. Okay. Um, okay, last. Oh, okay. Wow. I've really gone over all of these. So, number eight. I want to make sure I, I look up a word. Uh, Okay, let me get back. Okay. Story of the Ascension assumed a 32 universe and therefore not capable of being translated for the context of the post-Copernican space age. I've always had questions about the Ascension. Uh, because I could not understand How come ascension wasn't common? For Enoch, Elijah, and Jesus, that's all I see. So if ascension was really all that, 
it should have been way more than three persons, in my opinion. And how come, based on what I've read, rock splitting and the earthquake and last example I can think of, uh, people, apparent dead people coming back alive and appearing to many people. So why did it take death for people to get their loved ones back? And why earthquake, even though you're about to die and you know earthquakes kill people, that's, that's problematic. And the rock splitting, why have the rock split? knowing that you live in a time where people love stoning each other and you have a lot of people who are so heartless they say oh there's more rocks for me to throw at other people that makes no sense so yes i'm explaining all of my doubts okay so those are all the 12 points for reform of christianity I look at all of them as figurative and not literal because I have not seen any scientific archaeological evidence for all of the extraordinary claims of Christianity being true. So everything John Shelby Spong said in terms of 12 points for reform that originally published in the Voice, the newsletter of the Diocese of New York in 1998, and then he elaborated looking at Christianity from the world. I think all these 12 points I just said to you are all figurative and not literal until I get further credible evidence. So that is exactly um, where I stand. Okay. I also want to briefly bring up uh, Bishop Carlton Pearson. Um, Pearson's belief in hell said on his website, a person who spends every day getting drunk will ruin their health, marriage, family, and career. They will make their lives a living hell, but that still falls far short of the chronic alcoholic being condemned by a just God to literally burn in hell forever and ever. For others, it may very well be that the punishment merited by their sins is greater than what they receive in this life. For those people, perhaps there will be some kind of punishment after death, but we believe that it will be remedial and correct or rather just punishment for punishment's sake. Exactly what that will be and how long it will last, we don't know. Will hell for some people last 10 minutes or 10 million years? We don't know, but this we do know. Hell will not last for eternity. It will not be endless. Don't sin. Be reunited with God now rather than having to put yourself in those you love through hell. I love what he said. He says, he, I love what he said. I do. Okay. So... Okay, so now I'm going to move along, and here we go.
10 symptoms of a selfish church member. Discover the attitudes church members need to make the most difference by Tom S. Rainer on Wednesday, January 1st, 2014 at 7 a.m. Often I'm tempted to use illustrations of my children in various settings since I have such a love for my three sons. Even now that they are adults now and children, I sometimes find myself talking about them and their little boys. I want it my way right now without compromise. So I thought I might begin this track by giving an illustration of my boys fussing and fighting because they wanted something their way. But then I think about how many times I fought with my own older brother because I wanted it my way right now without compromise. I could be a selfish brat. It's good we grow out of that phase as we become adults, right? It's better that we never revert to that phase as we become Christians, right? Wrong. When adults throw temper tantrums in church, Christians can sometimes act just like those demanding children and want things their way. Temper tantrums in churches may not include church members lying on the floor, kicking and screaming, even though that does happen, but some come close. But the strange thing about church membership is that you actually give up your preferences when you join. Don't get me wrong, there may be much about your church that you like a lot, but you are there to meet the needs of others. You're there to serve others. You're there to give. You're there to sacrifice. Get the picture? An example of a me-first moment in the Bible, Jesus would often say things that confounded his listeners. You see, even his disciples had a tendency, you see, even his disciples had a tendency to fight with one another. On one occasion, the twelve were arguing about who was the greatest. Can you imagine that? The closest followers of Jesus were having a me-first fight. The Bible says that Jesus stopped and sat down and called these grown men together. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Mark chapter 9, verse 35. Ouch. Yikes. I would have loved to have been a fly on a cloak and seen the expression. Yep, he got you this time, you self-serving disciples. And then it hits me. That text is for me as well. As a church member, my motivation should not be to get my preferences to the top of the list. I am supposed to be last, not first. I'm supposed to be a servant instead of seeking to be served. A survey that said a lot. My research team recently conducted a survey of churches that were inwardly focused. For the most part, they were not serving past their own walls and their own members. In other words, though these churches were largely self-serving. In our survey... We found 10 dominant behavior patterns of members in these churches. See if you recognize any. One, worship wars. One or more factions in the church want the music just the way they like it. Any deviation is met with anger and demands for change. The order of service must remain constant. Certain instrumentation is required while others are prohibited. Two, prolonged minutia meetings. The church spends an order amount of time in different meetings. Most of the meetings deal with the most inconsequential items, while the Great Commission and Great Commandment are rarely the topics of discussion. Three, facility focus. The church facilitates developed iconic status. One of the highest priorities in the church is the protection and preservation of rooms, furniture, and other visible parts of the church's buildings and grounds. Four, program driven. It, every church has programs, even if they don't admit it. When we start doing a ministry, a certain way it takes on programmatic status the pro the problem is not with programs the problem is when the program becomes an end instead of a means to greater ministry five and really focused budget a disproportionate share of the budget is used to meet the needs and comforts of the members instead of reaching beyond the walls of the church six inordinate demands for pastoral care all church members deserve care and concern especially in times of human crisis problems develop however when church members have unreasonable expectations for even minor matters for even minor matters. 
Some members expect to pass throw offs after visiting regular leagues merely because they have membership status. Seven, attitudes of entitlement. This issue could be a catch-all for many of the points named here. The overarching attitude is one of demanding and having a sense of deserving special treatment. Eight, greater concern about change in the gospel. Almost any noticeable change in the church evokes the ire of many, but those same passions are not evident about participating in the work of the gospel to change lives. Nine, anger and hostility. Members are consistently angry. They regularly express hostility toward the church, staff, and other members. 10. Evangelistic apathy. Very few members share their faith on a regular basis. More are concerned about their own needs rather than the greatest eternal needs of the world and community in which they live. Church membership from a biblical perspective. In almost every behavior above, church members looking out for their own needs and preferences. I want the music my way. I want the building my way. I'm upset because the pastor didn't visit me. I don't want to change anything in my church. You get the picture? I mean myself. Church membership from a biblical perspective, however, is not church membership from a biblical perspective from a biblical perspective, however, is about servanthood. It's about giving. It's about putting others first. Excerpted from I'm a church member by Tom S. Rayner. Thomas Rain is the president of Lifeway Christian Resources, also a respected pastor researcher. Thomas has written more than 20 books, including number one bestseller, I'm a church member. It gets worse. Because those are more of the reasons why I left religion and Christianity. Okay. By Thomas Rayner again. Founder and CEO began as a Nick Hewis Twitter survey. But then it blew up. A lot of church members and leaders were eager to share about fights, schisms, and conflicts in their congregations. They were likewise eager to point out the absurdity of these issues. They were the ones we've heard often. Temperature in the worship center, color of carpet, order of worship, and color of walls. The fights shown below, however, are a bit unusual. Indeed, most of them are downright absurd. I picked 25 of my quote-unquote favorites. They are listed in no particular order. The parenthetical commentary is my own. One, argument of the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. I think I saw a verse in scripture that indicated it is to be no more than 1.5 inches longer than the pastor's beard. Oh, God. To fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or use the land for a cemetery. I'm dying to know the resolution of this one. Three, a deacon accusing another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and deciding to settle the matter in the parking lot. A church could have sold tickets to this event and raised a lot of money. Four, a church dispute of whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. I'm calling unfair on this one. The men should have their stall dividers, too. Five, a church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. I think this one is a timely argument. Six, a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. Black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. This one is an official cabinet meeting of the church leadership. Seven, a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. I just want to know who took the pictures. Eight. A petition to have all church staff clean-shaven. 
No church planners are allowed. Nine, a dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the service. A vote for shoes, shirts, and pants. Ten, a big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was off 10 cents. Someone finally gave a dime to settle the issue. I have to admit, this issue is 10 times more important than the church missing a penny. 11. Dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran slash grape juice instead of grape juice. Of course, it should be grape juice. It's right there in Hezekiah chapter 4, verse 11. 12. Be business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to resolve. Wow, this fight was really wacky. 13. Arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve. I could have resolved this conflict quickly. None. 14. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from folders to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the later example. Perhaps they started a new church, the Right Blend Fellowship. 15. Major conflict when the youth borrowed a crock pot that had not been used for years. I bet it was a bunch of crocky older dogs. 16. An argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. Only if it's balanced with angel food cake for dessert. 17. An argument over who has the authority to buy postage stamps for the church. The members were licking their wounds of this issue. 18. A disagreement over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing. I get it. The concept of luck contradicts the theology of a sovereign God. This issue is very serious. Good luck trying to resolve it. 19. A church member was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee service. It looked too much like liquor. Beth more confessed she was the culprit who brought the syrup. Don't you know, Beth, we Baptists cannot have vanilla syrup at any time? Chocolate is fine, though. 20. An argument in church over who has access to the coffee machine. I think a calendar should be made where every church member has at least five minutes of access to the copy machine each year. You can have a business meeting to vote on each five-minute increment. 21. Some church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. It resulted in a major fight and split. Thus, the second Electrolux Church was born. 22. An argument over whether to have gluten-free communion bread or not. I thought gluttony was a sin. 23. A dispute over whether the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts since black is the color of the devil. Are you sure he's not red? That's what I've heard. Can somebody shout racism? 24. A fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday each week. I've got an idea. Alternate it with the doxology. 25. An argument over whether the fake dusty plant should be removed from the podium. Just give them a little water. They should be fine. Yes, these issues are silly. Many are absurd, but they're all distractions from what we should be doing in our churches. In that sense, they're really great distractions from the Great Commission. See, the, these stupid church fights, another reason why I left. I, I can't anymore. I, I'm done. I can't.
top 10 common topics of church member arguments by Tom Esplaner, op-ed contributor. Uh, I'm just, let's see. The 10 common ones are one, worship and music style. I do believe this long-standing battle is diminishing, but it's still around sometimes with intensity. Two, volume is music in the services. This issue is, of course, closely related to the first issue. It is, however, a battle unto itself in some churches. Three, reason why churches die. There are many perspectives on this matter, and often becomes a point of debate in declining churches. Members struggle to discern why their particular churches are declining. Four, proper attire for church services. I've never focused on this topic, but that's not stopped. Some pretty lively comments and posted are tangentially related at best. I'm still debating whether or not I should give my tithes to Goodwill. Five, pastor salaries. Though the discussion has been lively on part on posts of this topic, the majority of those commenting desire to see pastors have a better or more adequate income. Six, mega churches. I have not posted a qualitative article on mega churches yet, but I posted lists of large churches. The mere mention of large churches and mega churches seems to draw strongly opinionated church members. Seven, the number of hours a pastor works each week. Sometimes I'm surprised by intensity of comments on some, on some topics. This topic is one of those. Eight, why people leave a church. Close to the number three, some church members express strong opinions on why people leave a church. Most of them have strong opinions on how to close the back door as well. Oh my. Nine, role of a pastor's wife. I'm still seeing comments on a couple of posts I did on this topic. Hardly day passes that someone else doesn't join the discussion. 10. Perspectives on pastors' children. This topic drew many pastors' kids and former pastors' kids. The strong emotions were indicative of a lot of hurt and pain that were still present in these current and former PKs, preacher kids, or pastors' kids. Wow. Wow. I'm going to have to make a part three of this. I can't get this all done today. All right. Woo. There's so much more. So much more. I'm not rushing. I will not rush. No need to. I'm going to get this all out in due time. And this stuff is crazy. Nuts. Just nuts. Nuts. Um. So what else do I want to say? Um, let's see. Um, 
I want to discuss more of what I'm seeing. So, six surprising idols worship today with idolatry. Death occurred for April 6,020. Well, this post makes, uh, that's just a uh, small commission to see later. Let me get to the point. We tend to think of idolatry as a sin of the past or or Eastern mysticism thing. We certainly don't have idols in Western culture, right? Actually, idolatry is surprisingly modern, very prevalent in our culture. Part of the reason we don't think about idol worship today is because our definition of idolatry is all. We think idolatry is confined to bowing down to a golden statue or frame to a wooden trinket. Since we don't do those things, we assume we don't have idols, but we do have modern day idols, lots of them. They look different than the idols of the past, but we still practice idolatry today. Before we look at idol worship today, we need to get a better definition of what an idol is. What is idolatry? What is an idol? What is, what is an idol? An idol is when something or someone becomes more important than God. Um, even good things can become idols when we make them the ultimate things in our lives. Anything or anyone can become an idol if we place a value for that thing slash person above our value for God. In ancient times, this would have looked like bowing down to worship a golden statue. Modern-day idols look different, more like getting our identity from our job or staring at our technology all day. Anything that becomes more important to us than God becomes an idol, and we all have them. Idolatry today might look different, but it is all around us. Ed Stance, there's an article called Idolatry is Alive Today, gives this idolatry definition. Is it that a 12-inch tall piece of wood or bronze can do something to add to us? Or is it that we do something awful to ourselves and we place that? What is an idol? What is idolatry? An idol is something that we placed above God. Anything that is more important to us than God is an idol. Idolatry is alive and well today. We are all prone to have idols in our lives. So what does the Bible say about these modern day idols? Let's look at some examples of idolatry in the Bible. I want to briefly look at what the Bible says about idolatry. To put it concisely, it doesn't say anything positive. Idol worship is condemned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then you have the unique typing Bible verses about idolatry. Go to openbible.com to see them. God sets the precedent for his people early on that his people shall have no gods except him. The Ten Commandments lead off with the command against idolatry. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. And the most subsequent books in the Old Testament echo this commandment. The New Testament is also vocal by idolatry, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, and Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, reminds us of the dangers of idolatry. Many times the New Testament warns of being seduced by the things of this world to the point where they become the most important thing in our lives, which is by definition idolatry. We see time and time again in the Bible that we tend to drift away from God, both the Old Testament and the New Testament are full of warnings against idolatry because we're so prone to wonder. We must be diligent in examining our life for idols. Now that we know what it is, what is an idol have a good idolatry definition? Let's switch gears and look at what modern day idols will still worship. Idol worship today. Before you read this list, let hear me on this. I'm not saying we should rid ourselves of things on this list, 
Many of the things that would be impossible, rather we need to evaluate our lives to make sure they are in the right order. And none of these things have become more important than God to us. When that happens, it's idolatry. I'm talking about the type of idol worship that has led me away from religion and church and Christianity based on what I saw in a lot of the members of the body of Christ. Here we go. With that in mind, here are six modern day idols we still worship. One, our identity. It's easy to place our identity in something or someone other than God, whether we be our social media following, our position at work, our ability slash skills, or the achievements we are after. Many have their identity wrapped up in the, in the wrong thing. Not only is this an idol, but it's also a tough way to live. If your identity is in your work, your skills, your looks, or anything else, you will constantly feel like you don't measure up. They are harsh masters, but when our identity is secured in God, we can live in freedom. While we still fall short, God's love will never fail us. For some, their identity has become an idol. They have placed more value in who they are rather than God. Two, money slash consumerism. Doesn't matter if you have money or are broke, the pursuit of money and the acquisition of things is an idol for many in our culture. Many people trust their money more than they trust God. Hear me on this. Money is not bad. Money is a tool, and like any tool, you have to use it correctly, otherwise, it could cause much damage. Money isn't the problem, it's how we use and view it that could become a problem. Many have placed their hopes and dreams in money. They trust it to provide for them, care for them, and protect them. The problem is it can't live up to what we're trying to get from it. Money has become the ultimate thing for many of us. It's the motivating factor in your life. If the motivating factor in your life is money and not God, then that's an idol. Three, entertainment. We are obsessed with being entertained, and it comes in many forms from Netflix to vacations, video games to podcasts. We love entertainment in all forms. Again, as with the other modern-day idols, it's not the entertainment is bad. It could be a good thing, but when our lives become all about the search for entertainment and chase of the best experiences we can find, then it becomes an idol. It becomes more important than God. I would argue that entertainment is good and a gift from God, but we should worship the giver, not the gift. Okay, four, sex. We are obsessed with sex in our culture. It is ever. It might be the only thing that we think about more than money. We have taken the gift from God and made it into the God of our lives. And for many, their lives are controlled by sex. To even question the sexual ethic in our society will bring a slip accusation showing how tied to our idol we actually are. Our sexual identity, sexual practices, and sex lives are sacred to us. The church has some blame for this. Rather than portraying sex as a good gift from God, in recent history, they have heaped guilt and shame. You could argue this is one of the factors that brought the over-exaggeration of sex. But regardless of how we got there from many today, sex and I are valued more than we do God. I'm talking about church culture in terms of these idol worships that I've witnessed. Five, comfort. There is an endless list of products promising to simplify and add comfort to your life. We have made our lives much easier, much more comfortable than at any other time in history. Um, ta tasks that used to take all day can be done in minutes. Many menial tasks are now automated. While that's a good thing, our pursuit in life should not be comfort alone. Jesus tells a very different narrative for his fathers. He says that his fathers will face trials, persecution, and difficulties. While comfort isn't bad, it can become damaging when it becomes the main pursuit in life. When comfort is an idol, we will struggle when God calls us to something difficult. Six, our phones. Smartphone addiction is increasingly becoming a worrying trend. This is especially true for Gen Z and millennial generations, but certainly not confined to them. For many, they simply cannot live without their phones or online presence. This is quickly becoming an idol for many. The problem isn't our phones or social media or any form of technology. 
It's the value we place on it that makes it a problem. When our lives revolve, revolve around how many likes we get, what our following looks like, if we can sit in silence for five minutes without refreshing our newsfeed, we might have an idol. Anything that takes the place of God in our life, anything that becomes more important than him is an idol. How to know if you have a modern day idol. Where do I spend my time? Where do I spend my money? Where do I get my joy? What's always on my mind? These are, I saw all these things in church culture. That's why I'm no longer part of church culture. I'm no longer part of religion culture. I'm not a, I'm no longer part of Christian culture because of it. I just wanted to practice what I'm talking about. I just wanted you to, I wanted to tell you what I'm talking about. Ooh, again, ooh, here we go. Number, okay, five signs of idolatry in the church. This is ministrytodaymag.com. One, the idol of celebrity preachers. They're believers who run all over the country to the conference of well-known preachers. Often when they meet them in person, they fall all over them and almost faint. Some well-known ministers cannot even go out in public without constantly being stopped by admirers so they can take quote-unquote selfies with them. Since I know I have worked with many of them, I've seen this firsthand. Although I'm a proponent of having a culture of honor and respect for those leaders who labor among us, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 through 17, some people have stepped over the edge into idolatry. They follow everything they say without question, irrespective of scandal, and do not search the scriptures themselves to see if what is preached aligns with God's word. When Cornelius met the apostle Peter and bowed down before him, Peter rightly told him to get up, that he was only a man like himself. Acts chapter 10, there's nothing wrong with emulating or following a leader, but there's something wrong with idolizing a Christian leader. There's such a pervasive political celebrity preacher culture in the in the body of Christ today that some mega churches and enterprises have literally closed down when their celebrity preachers step down. If churches and ministries were built according to the New Testament pattern in which the whole body exists to minister, and to edify one another in love, then we would not depend merely upon one leader for the congregation to function. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Two, the idol of worship slash entertainment. There are many believers who flock to church that have skilled singers and music primarily to be entertained. Consequently, many believers don't realize they're putting self-gratification and entertainment before true worship. Years ago, many churches would not even have musical instruments and people would flock to churches anyway. Even though the congregation only used hymnals and sang a cappella for worship. Now, it is very common for pastors to budget large amounts of money to pay for professional singers and musicians in order to fill their church services with people. In my opinion, even though we are called to worship for excellence and skill, we have gone too far and the church have mingled as a core value the entertainment culture of the world. At the end of the day, whether we have worship performed by professionals, used merely as recording or sing a cappella, congregation should worship and adore him just the same in spirit and truth, which is the only kind of worship God seeks. John chapter 4, verses 23 through 24. Those who leave their local churches to attend other churches with quote unquote with better worship, in my opinion, are often guilty of idolatry since they cannot worship God from their hearts without being entertained by professionals. Three, the idol of personal prosperity. There are believers whose main motive is to use their faith to leverage influence with God for personal gain. Although God delights in blessing all his children, John, third, third John chapter two, Jesus told us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness for our material needs to be added to us. Matthew chapter six, verse 33. Many attempt to use the benevolent character of God to live a myopic life in which Christianity orbits around the universe itself. 
God has given us power to get wealth so we can spread his covenant to the whole earth, not merely so we can live a life of ease. Using our faith to put our own needs first is a form of idolatry, in my opinion. Four, the idol of objectifying God. Although this point similar to the previous point, I feel there's enough of a distinction to make them separate. Through the years, I have seen many in the church preach and promote an I-me-my culture. For example, much of the preaching deals with self-actualization, fulfillment, and therapy. Rather, even though there's nothing wrong with therapy, and there's nothing wrong with self-actualization, fulfillment, there's nothing wrong with that. But, for example, much of the preaching deals with self-actualization, fulfillment, and therapy rather than sound biblical theology calling believers to live a life of service. Pastors have often fed into the culture idolatry of the people in order to attract people into the church, something that displeases God, reach Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 10 through 12. I have observed there are, I observed there are too few quote-unquote cross-carrying disciples attending churches, but many use God when they need him. For example, many come to church to quote-unquote feel the presence of God, but are not committed to knowing and loving quote-unquote the person of God. Many come to church merely to feel good instead of being equipped to do good works, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Many come to quote-unquote get a word instead of coming to give a word of edification to someone else. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Many come to listen to rhetorical messages that excite the emotions with no intention of walking out the word. Many come to shout amen, psychologically being deceived into believing that because they shout it, they've already obeyed. Consequently, there are many believers who live no differently than their unbelieving neighbors, which is why mega churches are not always, quote unquote, mega cultural influences and why church growth doesn't always result in personal and societal transformation. Although many have attended church for decades, they have never matured and are still drinking papillum, have never digested the meat of the word. First Corinthians chapter three, verse one through three. Five, lastly, the idol of ethnicity. There are many believers who have, fought, who have allowed their ethnicity and culture to trump the word of God. Jesus said culture is even stronger than the word of God in people's lives. Mark chapter 7, verse 78. Consequently, people read the scripture through their Caucasian, Western, Afrocentric lens, Hispanic or Asian lens. One of the most important things to do in regards to receiving the word of God for personal transformation is to attempt to take ourselves out of our own cultural context and read the Bible through the eyes of the author's original intent which is something only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. There's no such thing as a Western, European, Caucasian Bible or an Afrocentric Bible, etc. We need to stop reading the scriptures merely through our ethnic lenses because in actuality, the Bible is written with a Hebraic mindset and it's foolish to think we can fully understand it with our contemporary ethnic mindsets. Consequently, believers often act and react no different from non-believers in regards to things that happen in contemporary society. For example, White, black, and brown believers have generally reacted far different from one another when it comes to interpreting immigration reform and the tragedies of the recent Michael Brown and Eric Garner deaths. Truly, I believe that the gospel is so powerful that it's possible for diverse Christians to come together with one voice and prophetically interpret, speak, and bring solutions to these painful and controversial issues. God is not, color God is not colorblind, since he made humans black, brown, yellow, red, and white in his own image. Hence, he designed us to have distinctions in culture regarding food, dress, language, and other things based upon ethnic nuances. However, these distinctions are not where believers should derive their primary identity or anchor their biblical ethics. For in Christ there is neither male nor female, black, white, or brown, for we are all one in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. When our ethnic thinking trumps our biblical thinking, we are guilty either of ignorance or ethnic idolatry. 
Unless or until the body of Christ get over its idolatry according to ethnicity, we will never become the generation that can disciple the nations, which refers to ethnic people groups as shown in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Since there's no neutrality, either the church will disciple the nations, or the nations will disciple the church. That was Joseph Moretta, is overseeing bishop of Resurrection Church and Christ Covenant Coalition in Brooklyn, New York. Visit him at josephmatera.org. These are the other reasons why I am unchurched. I am really enjoying all this. I really am. In terms of being honest. And honesty is good. Um, I'm going to pause. I'm going to make a part three. And that will be the last time I talk about religion for quite a while. Here we go.